Welcome to Feeding the Flock Season 9 and our expositions through the book of 2 Corinthians. We are currently in chapter 12, verse 19. Hi, I'm Glendale Tony. I'm glad you joined me today for this Bible study as we go through this particular book. May we be encouraged to know perhaps not only God's words a little better, but also to know the heart of the Apostle Paul just a little more clearly. Let's continue in this passage in chapter 12, verse 19 of the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. Paul writes this, All this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. This last paragraph of chapter 19 actually is what, uh, according to this framework that we've adopted in order to get through this book, this is the, the beginning of the epilogue. And in many regards, as we've said uh, times before that sometimes it's important in our Bible study that we ignore the chapter divisions and sometimes even the verse divisions because they focus our attention on splitting up God's word rather than seeing the flow of the passage. Now, in many regards, I'm doing that already because I am uh, only covering this particular paragraph at the end of chapter 12 in this episode. And the first first four verses of chapter 13 actually fit together with this, this paragraph here in, uh, in chapter uh, 12. So, so this is one long idea here, you might say, as a part of the epilogue, and that is the idea of Christ mighty in you, chapter 12, verse 19 through chapter 13, verse 4. Now, there's another idea, a second one coming up in chapter 13, verses 5 through 10, as a part of this epilogue, and that is that you be made complete. And so there are two ideas that, number one, Christ is mighty in you, and you then are therefore complete in him, and you will be made complete by him if he is mighty in you. And the reason why we look at it this way is that is it is in many regards as an epilogue, if you consider this entire uh, section, 
uh, is parallel to the prologue in verses 3 through 11 of chapter 1, because the prologue was written, written for your comfort, uh, and that's, that's in that paragraph, before he begins the actual text of the, of the book itself, or the letter itself, uh, and uh, now he, bege- he ends the book with this epilogue, and that has the general umbrella theme of for your upbuilding, and that's part of what we find uh, in the content of this paragraph here in front of us. So, the, uh, the prologue is for your comfort. The epilogue is for your upbuilding. And this is encouragement for a changing church. It was, in many regards, a very broken church to begin with, and it still is, or at least it has that potential of breaking apart. And Paul realizes that this, this letter and the contents that he has may actually be the tool God uses to bring them back to a uh, consistent and a a fruitful uh, walk with Christ as a congregation, unified once again around Christ, instead of being uh, split up and, uh, and fragmented by false teachers, and in this case, false apostles. So this is for your upbuilding in the epilogue of this book. And so this paragraph here talks about Paul finding sins unrepentant. Now, the first four verses of chapter 13 talk about the Corinthians seeking proof of authority and his uh, Paul's response to that in chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. So, Let's look at this. He says, all this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you because that's what it looks like, by the way. And uh, this context here has to do with Paul's uh, defense of his of his apostolic authority, of his authority as an apostle, apostle, a full-blown apostle, uh, along with all the other apostles. And what he is trying to do is get them to see that, that uh, they have the evidence already in front of them, but they've been clouded or deceived or somehow led astray by these false apostles. But this leading astray hasn't happened in a um, a vacuum. It happened because they were susceptible, he believes. And he believes that they were susceptible perhaps because of these sins. And that's what he's getting at. Uh, so the whole argument, you might say, began in chapter 10 and verse 1, and it concludes in chapter 12 and verse 18. That's that larger section that Paul is giving a vindication of himself and answering uh, this challenge to his apostleship. But he he uh, he sort of adds this footnote, you might say, adds this epilogue to say that if you think that I've been trying to defend myself for myself's sake or for my office's sake, it hasn't been for me at all. It's been because I had you in mind. He says, you think I've been defending ourselves to you? Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in 
Christ. I think that's very fascinating that now Paul wraps this whole argument of what he called foolishness because he was approaching this subject in in a foolish way or at least uh, trying to meet his opposition on their terms, and he understood that this was completely out of character in many regards, and it was completely a, 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 an adopted tactic that Jesus himself would not use while he was on the earth, and yet Paul chose to use this particular uh, strategy in his argument to defend himself, and yet he's not defending himself for his own self's sake. Now, what's interesting is in chapter 11, verse 17, Paul even gave a sort of caveat. He says, what I am saying I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. So Paul uh, uh, provides this boasting, but as it turns out, if you actually read those passages, Paul isn't boasting about hardly anything at all. At least he doesn't use it as a boast. He uses it as an excuse to talk about the real things that are on that are on his heart, the real motivations, the real signs, and uh, the real revelations that uh, were given to him. And it wasn't a trip to heaven, and it wasn't all those miracles. The real sign and the real... Uh, Revelation was the fact that God had spoken to him and said, my grace is sufficient. And the real signs was were that, uh, the, that Paul had loved them unconditionally. That was the true sign of apostleship that is the only one he listed out in that previous paragraph. So, so then he says, it's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. So now this, uh, this entire argument that he put in the label of foolishness, of boasting, this entire argument that he, that he uh, gave the caveat and said, Jesus wouldn't ever do this himself, but I'm doing it. Now Paul wants you to know that he said all these things in Christ. He said them as being motivated in Christ, by being motivated by the Holy Spirit, whom he does not name here, but that's that's the uh, the way in which this sort of works, you see, in that that uh, in Christ he's done this speaking, and he understands that even this is Christ speaking through him, using his personality, his vocabulary, his motivations, his ability to communicate these things very carefully and uh, using all the communicative tools that he has available to him to say the things that he now says Christ wanted him to say and that God the Father was looking on. He says, I've done it in the sight of God. So it's almost as if God, that, uh, excuse me, that Paul invites two persons of the Trinity into the room to look over his shoulder and say, these are the guys that have been behind for all that I've written so far. Very fascinating position that Paul says about his entire delivery of this entire um, letter, this entire epistle. He says, 
and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Again, he calls them beloved. He wants them to know that they are in a category of their own, that he loves them. He'd already talked about his love for them and what he did out of love, that the sacrifices he made and the principles he practiced was because he valued them and their spiritual growth. He didn't want what they had. He wanted their hearts to be devoted to Christ. And um, that's what he wanted. He He wants them to know they are beloved, and he wants them to know that he said these things in Christ for their upbuilding. It's all about building them up. It's all about uh, their edification, and he wants them to know that's what it is. That's what this letter is all about, a loving apostle desiring the best for the people that he's leading in Christ. He's led them to Christ. He's formed their congregation by being there when it was planted. And now as an apostle who's already been there, who's already written previous letters to them, and now he says, it's all been for your upbuilding, not for me. It has nothing to do with me. It has to do with you. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be, not what you wish. Well, we're going to explain that verse in the next couple of verses when we get back right after this break. Welcome back. Paul has now said in verse 20, he, he hopes that, uh, that he won't find what, what he thinks might be. And that's in itself a very intriguing idea that the apostle still allows for the fact that, that this may not turn out well. Isn't that fascinating? I think it's it's interesting to notice that that Paul the apostle even even with all the theology and all the doctrine that uh, he is credited with and all the other things that that he has has given himself uh, to be an example of spirituality what's interesting is he is still not presumptive upon the work of God that he still allows for the fact this still uh, may not work out, that these people have a mind of their own and they might still be making decisions that, that will be completely against everything I have taught them and everything I've tried to say to them. And that even includes the writing of this strong letter. 
and my next visit to them may not be what what I expect it to be. And I may not be to them what they expect me to be. Because if I find these things, then I'm going to have to be a different Paul with them. And I'll have to uh, take things in hand and and be able to guide them through uh, spiritual disciplines and church discipline, perhaps, to correct the things that are wrong. And he doesn't want to do that. I think that's a, it's such a, an intimate look into Paul's heart. He doesn't want to come in as a strong, authoritative, bossing everybody around. He'll do it if he has to. But that's not what he wants. He wants to come in because they have been repentant and they've responded to these words. But he allows for the fact that it just might not be that way. It may not turn out to be all hunky-dory and all uh, blooming roses. It may turn out to be different. And uh, so Paul allows for that. He says, verse 20, for I am afraid that perhaps I, when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Paul is, is not looking forward to this visit. He, and in fact, uh, he he is is saying that uh, he's afraid that uh, God may humiliate him. That's what he says in verse twenty one, which we'll get to in just a moment. But look at all these things he lists out here: things that to concern uh, bad character, bad representation of Christ and His Spirit, bad representation of God's words and God's truth by this competitive atmosphere and this this uh, out of control uh division and argumentation and and loud voices and angry tempers he doesn't want that that's not the way that god's people should be you know it's it's almost as if paul knew what a church business meeting was like <laughs> you see i've been in a few church business meetings and some of them have been quite good and quite godly and quite Christ-like in the way they conducted themselves. But there have also been some very poor church uh, business meetings. And uh, so Paul, it's almost as if Paul has set in and on a few himself and knows what sinful people do when they allow themselves to be corrupted by sin, unrepentant sin. And it, it stirs up this pot of sinfulness and selfishness and competition and arrogance and pride and gossip and disturbances, as he calls it. And what's interesting is there are several lists, you might say, in the New Testament of the kind of of bad behavior, the kind of bad character that uh, doesn't reflect the truth of God or the spirit of God at all. Uh, Romans chapter 13 has a whole list called the deeds of darkness. Galatians chapter 5 has a list that uh, is labeled the deeds of the flesh. Both of those books, by the way, written by Paul. And then we have a book written by James, James in chapter 3, 
has a, a, a kind of wisdom that he also has a list that comes with this wisdom that doesn't come from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. And he's got a similar list there as what Paul lists out here. They are about to encounter real spiritual problems, or at least they've already been, been uh, involved in real spiritual problems, and Paul is about to encounter them with those very things that may may be still a part of that congregation. And he doesn't want to see it. He wants to come in to know that they've repented of these sins, but they may not have. And he's, he's trying to prepare himself and prepare them for the fact that these things may still be there. Uh, the idea of strife means rivalry and competition and discord in the congregation. Get it? And perhaps it has to do with the fact that all of these things are getting actually stirred up by these false apostles and by their wrong doctrine and wrong teaching. It just perpetuates all of these things in this list. And, and uh, uh, if it's rivalry or competition, it says jealousy, strong resentment because somebody else got the job I think I should have gotten, or they got the recognition, or they got the certificate, or they got their name called out or published in the bulletin when I didn't. All this jealousy and envy going on. And it's connected perhaps to the arrogance that comes along later in the list angry tempers and this this is intense anger and it implies outbursts of intense anger rage and wrath and fury uh people uh, uh jumping up and 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 uh protesting themselves out of the congregation by walking out on a meeting and uh it happens and uh, uh angry tempers just this outburst with no control, no self-control, and uh, no deliberated uh, civil discourse at all. Uh, disputes, that means arguments, that means rivalry, it means selfish ambition uh, leading to arguments. And slanders, That uh, the King James calls that uh, backbitings, to speak evil of, and it's related to the next uh, word, about gossip, although slanders, uh, they are done publicly. Now, I realize that in our own legal culture and, uh, and in our own uh, uh, litigation, there is an official uh, legal definition for slander, uh, but uh, there's also a, a biblical practice that sometimes uh, uh, is, is, comes out in congregation, and that means the, that a person is spoken evil of in a public fashion, and uh, it may not satisfy as as legal slander, but it definitely is character uh, demeaning, and it's done publicly. Whereas the next word, gossip, that's done secretly. And in fact, uh, if I were to pronounce the Greek word, which is very difficult to do, but the first syllable is actually what we would call a whisper. It's like a it, it's exactly that's what it is in the Greek is is and that is uh, an automatopoeia type of word then and the King James calls it whisperings and 
And so that's related to the other word about slanders. That's done publicly, but gossip is done secretly. It's whispering around and trying to tear down and uh, uh, and destroy someone else's reputation or character. This idea of arrogance is also there. That means pride, or literally it means puffed up and Uh, It means inflated, but that means an exaggerated view of one's self-importance. And that's what's going on when you have competition. Not only do you have people uh, feeling like they're inferior to each other, but you have other people uh, acting like they're better than each other. And uh, that's a part of, of what uh, Paul said earlier in lots of different places in 1 Corinthians. He talked about uh, uh, no one of you becoming arrogant in chapter 4. Also, uh, later in chapter 4, he says, now some of you have become arrogant. And um, in chapter 5, he says, you have become arrogant and not mourned. Instead, in chapter 8, Paul says, uh, knowledge makes arrogant. In chapter 13, Paul says, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant. And in fact, we are warned against arrogance in other places in the New Testament as one of the signs of the last days and it's and of the false prophets, that is. And it says in 2 Timothy 3 verse 2, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, and unholy. Second Peter Chapter 2, verse 18 says, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. And um, so arrogance is a part of the... uh, the prophets of the last days. Jude chapter, that is verse 16, says uh, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. So that's what these people do. They flatter and they speak arrogantly. They have no authority, but they stir up this strife and these despair, uh, these uh, disturbances and that word uh, disturbance actually means riot and uh, evidently somewhat uh, violent riots. But notice again, it says, I am afraid that when I come, God may humiliate me before you and may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of impurity, immorality, and sensuality, which they have practiced. So Paul understands that all of these social problems up above that he's just talked about in verse 20 have a root cause, and it's rooted in sexual sin. And in fact, one of those words, the term immorality, has the root word that we find in our words for pornography. It has to do with sexual sins of all sorts sensuality of all sorts. That word means without bounds, without limits, without any sort of of, uh, control and excess. And if we live in a culture of excess, that's exactly what we might be susceptible to, finding ourselves in adopting the world's ideas about sexuality. And by doing so, we allow ourselves 
to be captured by the enemy. And it destroys our lives and it destroys our churches. Many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented, it's time to repent for those sins that have corrupted our souls, corrupted our bodies, corrupted our minds, so that we can focus and grow in Christ. Paul was afraid that he might find that in coming back to Corinth, but he is praying that he doesn't so that they repent of these these sins of the past and get it cleared up so that they begin to behave properly toward each other. Father, we call upon you to convict us of our sins so that we can clear them up with you, confess them to you, and know that you can cleanse us from all of our sins, change our minds, change our motives, change our direction and our decisions and our demeanor so that our character reflects that of Christ. Even in our church business meetings, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our presentation today. This is Glendale Tony. Join us again for the next episode of Feeding the Flock.